Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are the king and creator of the universe and that the universe outside this planet runs as you've designed it. We are so eager for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on this earth. We ask that you will enlighten and empower us to be your agents on this planet to take and promote your kingdom. In your holy name, amen. Received this email this week. I want to share it with you. Thank you very much for what you guys do. I'm fairly new to Come and Reason and took my time listening to lectures and the Bible studies before buying in. I'm very thankful that Dr. Jennings has been able to articulate the penal legal theory in a way that has resonated with so many people. It is one of those concepts in Christianity that I grew up believing was wrong, but could never really define it or see the bigger picture associated with it. It's also funny because I'm in my late 40s and have recently gotten into law school. And yes, the socialist Marxist ideas hinted at in lesson studies are alive and well in in the Canadian universities as well. Thank you all for all you do. I enjoy the podcasts when I have some spare time to do some clean, uh, to clean up the shop or when I uh, get to prepare and lead out in our local Sabbath school lesson study. So we are now starting a new quarter this quarter and it is on education. And what is the purpose of education? Well, to learn to develop, but for what purpose are we learning and developing? Um, Proverbs 9.10, and this is uh, in the opening of the uh, quarterly, it quotes Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then the first paragraph reads, think about the above text. It entails, really, two closely related concepts, fear as in awe, as in marveling at the glory and power of God, and knowledge as in learning the truth about the character of God. Hence, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are rooted in God himself. This makes perfect sense. After all, he is the source of all existence, the one alone who created and sustains all existence. Whatever we learn, whatever we know about quarks, caterpillars, supernovas, angels, demons, principalities and powers in heavenly places... Everything, they exist only because of God. Hence, all true knowledge and wisdom and understanding ultimately have their source in the Lord himself. I think this was extremely well said. Extremely well said. Thank you, uh, lesson authors, for writing such a, a great introductory paragraph. So the purpose of education, to learn, to develop, to become wise, which means to be, come to know the truth about God, his methods, his principles, how his kingdom runs, to become more like him, to develop Christ-like character. As we describe that process of education, with those goals, are there any laws involved? Yes, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. The law of exertion, strength comes from exercise. The law of truth, truth destroys lies and ennobles and and elevates the person as we assimilate and accept truth. Love, that, that we live out the principles of love and how we treat others and thus we become more loving and godlike in character. There are laws actual involved. 
And I wanted to read to you the opening paragraph in this little book called Education, since we're doing a quarterly on education this week. And here's the opening paragraph, first paragraph in the book. Our ideas of education take too narrow and too low in range. Excuse me. Yeah, take too narrow and too low of range. What does this mean? What is the the too narrow and too low? Our ideas of education. Reading, writing, arithmetic, academic learning, vocations, degrees, scholastics. I'm not reading now. Uh, I'm pausing in the middle of the quote there. Uh, What I'm describing, these are the lower education. The narrow education focused on things, facts, fields of study, not on the larger reality of God's kingdom, who we are, the war uh, in God's universe, God's methods and purposes. The lower view are the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, data. One can get advanced degrees in this world and still be most ignorant of reality. Think of all the scientists who promote a godless universe. Advanced degrees, academic excellence. Nobel Prize winners. Nobel Prize winners. And still most ignorant of reality. Continuing on with the first paragraph of that book. There is need of a broader scope, a higher aim. True education means more than pursuit of certain course of study. It means more than a preparation for the life that now is. I'm pausing again. What does that mean? That our education is first and foremost for our lives in God's kingdom, if we're doing a true education, not the kingdoms of this world. That's not the, that's not the first purpose of education. Continuing on with the quote. True education has to do with the whole being, with the whole period of existence possible to man. Let that just percolate a minute. The whole being is more than cognitive. It's more than physical. And what about the whole period that's possible to man? How, how big a period is that? It's eternity. Focus of education is, is eternity. Finishing the quote. True education is the harmonious development of the physical, mental, and spiritual powers. It prepares the student for the joy of service in the world and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. When I read this, uh, a question popped in my mind we're going to spend a little time on here this morning. What is the difference between mental and spiritual powers? What is the spirit of a human? We're not speaking about a vapor that floats around outside your body when your body dies. Is the spirit of a human their attitude? He's got good spirit. Is it affection? I'll be with you in spirit. Is that the spirit of a man? Or is it the part of humanity that is sensitive and responsive to God? My view, you know, and then, and when you think about that, 
then what are the spiritual powers versus the mental powers and how do we develop them? So my view, where I'm at today, and I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm advancing, I'm a finite being, so if you have some good ideas that can expand, then let's, let's, let's do that. But my view currently is that the spiritual powers are those powers that we get from being connected in harmony with God. Mental powers are abilities or capacities that God created us with that we can still exercise while in rebellion against God. But spiritual powers only grow to the degree we're working with God and God is working in us. Those are the spiritual powers. So spiritual powers include the following. Love. The process of compassion, altruism, empathy. To the degree a person loves genuinely another person, it's evidence of God working in their life and exercising a spiritual power. Truth-bearing. Not capacity for understanding truth, but truth-bearing in oneself, application, and sharing and bearing. The ability to know, live, and share real truth. The truth of God's kingdom, of reality. This is a spiritual power, the sword of truth. Living faith. Not the mere capacity again to have faith, but the functional faith in God that results in the ability to stand up to opposition. To trust God with how things will turn out. To do what's right, because you know it's right, even though the heavens shall fall. To stand on the plain of Dura and not bow and go under the fiery furnace. That's a living faith. That's a spiritual power. Hope. Genuine hope comes from knowing God and the eternal realities of his kingdom. There is a futile earthly hope in which we hope for things. Or results. Hope I get that job. I hope that girl will go out with me. This is not a spiritual power. This is an empty hope. A futile earthly hope. This earthly hope is similar to the counterfeits to love. Where we love things and we love people for what they do for us. I love how you make me feel. I love how you make me look. I love how, how you make my life better. I don't love you. I love what you do for me. Okay, that's a futile earthly love. That's not a spiritual power. That's a selfish expression of a spiritual power. So hope has a selfish expression. Love has a selfish expression. Other spiritual powers. Discernment. Discernment. The ability to differentiate from good from evil. People disconnected from God do not have discernment. I will tell you, they do not have it. They think their evil deeds are righteous. They defend their right to fight and to hurt and to dominate and to coerce. You will see this in religious organizations. The right, the righteousness of burning people at the stake. Of crucifying someone on the cross. It's right. No discernment at all. You'll see it in the world today. We're going to get into that more. Wisdom. Wisdom is a spiritual power. 
the ability to apply truth and knowledge, here's what it is, in harmony with God's principles for the outworking of God's purposes. Wisdom. It's not just knowing something to be true. It's the application of those truths in harmony with God's principles and purposes. Knowing God's methods, how reality actually works is a spiritual power. That's similar to discernment, but it may not have specifically the discerning good and evil. It's really discerning or knowing how God has designed or built things to work. Consciousness or conscientiousness, this is what I meant to say, your conscience and your conscientiousness. Conscience is ability, conscientiousness is the spiritual power. The closer we come to God, the more sensitive our consciences become. The things of the world become more offensive to us. The things of God become more joyful to us. We are quick and more sensitive to pick up deviations from God's designs for life. This is a spiritual power. Can you, any others anybody was thinking of that popped into your mind? Self-control. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you for putting it. Yes, self-control is a spiritual power. Good one. Good one. I want to add that one. As the Holy Spirit has his way in our lives, we do not become God-controlled puppets or robots. He heals and fixes and empowers you to exercise enkratia. That's the Greek word in Galatians. Translated self-control. N, as in within. Krat, as in authority. Democrat, autocrat, exercising authority. So, enkratia, exercising authority within oneself. Self-control. The Holy Spirit gives you that power. But you don't get that. You lose that. If you're not in harmony with God until by the Spirit. So, how do we develop spiritual powers? By experience and ex- exercise. First and foremost, it starts in infancy. As soon as you're born into the world, healthy, nurturing, loving environments change brain structure, developing in the infant greater love circuits and calming the brain's fear circuits, altering gene expression in ways that the infant is being fitted or prepared by their healthy parenting to be able to develop these fruits or spiritual um, powers later in life. Starts right there. So healthy love, nurturing, what? Again, it starts in utero? You, yes, yes, it, it, it absolutely does. It starts actually, you can go epigenetically several generations back even. Okay, but we're going to just, that's a starting point. Uh, parental reliability in childhood. Parents who are reliable, predictable, set boundaries, enforce boundaries, keep their word. This teaches and engenders in the child the ability to trust. I can trust my parents because they do what they say. They're reliable. They show up when they say they're going to show up. When they told me I couldn't have cookies because I didn't pick up my toys, and then I cried and whined and threw a fit, I still couldn't have cookies. They kept their word. I could trust them. <laughs> parents who give in to the little tantrums and tirades and I can't take it, okay, have the cookies, just be quiet, teach the children that they can't trust. Can't trust you. You don't keep your word. You lie. Told me I couldn't, but, but then you gave it to me anyway. So 
Again, we are, it starts in childhood to develop these foundational, both neurobiological and psychological worldview perceptions. And then as the child grows with greater capacities, teaching children reality, both didactically and experientially, we apply the lessons of reality to help them develop, why did mommy say you must brush your teeth? There's a reason as they grow, and, and we've all grown. Most of us had a rule we didn't understand, but as we grew, we came to understand. Oh, that, that and then the rule fades away. We do it because it's written in our heart. We don't want our teeth to decay. We understand the law of thermodynamics, and so we're doing it freely, without coercion, without oversight. Why? Because we were given discernment, and we prefer healthy teeth than decayed ones. As with all powers, we must exercise them. If we want more love, we must love. We must spend time in communion with God if we want to become more like him by beholding we're changed. The source of love, God the source of love, and then we share what he has shared with us. In researching, here's another quote I came across preparing for this class. It's out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 345. The humble worker who obediently responds to the call of God may be sure of receiving divine assistance. Pause. What's the meaning? What did you just hear? What's described? God calls. We humbly exercise our freedom to choose to say yes to God. That's what happens. He calls, and you've all been called, but you still have a choice, yes or no. Or, Saturday, Lord, I'll see you on Saturday. I'm busy right now. Friday night, let's go. Friday night, I'll see you Friday night, Lord. Right now, I'm busy. I'm, I'm doing my own thing right now. I heard your call. I'll see you later. Can I call you back? <laughs> Let me put you on hold. Leave me a voicemail. God calls. We humbly exercise our freedom to choose to say yes. And when we say yes, we receive divine assistance. We are not left on our own power. But you don't get the power till you say yes. Continue on with the quote. To accept so great and holy a responsibility is itself elevating to the character. Pause. Why? What's described? The act of exercising your will to choose changes you, regardless of what you choose. You choose righteous, you will be changed in a positive way. You choose wicked, you'll be cho- changed in a different direction. It's the act of choosing. Change it, either aligning ourselves with God and his kingdom or alienating ourselves. Every act, of, every act of the will, every choice you make is, is impacting you. You can't avoid it. That's reality. Continue on with the quote. It calls into action the highest mental and spiritual powers. Spiritual powers. That's how I, I got this quote. I was looking at spiritual powers. And strengthens and purifies the mind and heart. Through faith in the power of God, it is wonderful how strong a weak person may become. How decided his efforts, how prolific of great results. He, he who begins with a little knowledge in a humble way and tells what he knows will, while seeking diligently for further knowledge will find the whole heavenly treasure awaiting his demand. 
The more he seeks to impart light, the more light he will receive. What laws are being? Are there any laws that are being the, that are in operation in this description that are that are that are actually fundamental to what's happening here? Yes, both the laws of exertion and the law of love. The more you exercise your abilities to study and know, the more your neural circuits will expand. We've seen this in the brains of intellectuals who have spent decades studying uh, complex con- concepts, and, we, and they have hugely complex neural networks because they exercise those abilities and they expand. The more you, you start with a little knowledge, but you humbly seek more and study for more, you will get more and your neural net will change. But the more you seek to impart light, law of giving. this is the law of giving. The law of love in action, the more you receive, the more you give, the more you receive. So continuing on with the quote, the more one tries to explain the word of God to others with love for souls, the plainer it becomes to himself. Notice the caveat, with love for souls. If one tries to explain it without love, one is a Pharisee. Outside of God's kingdom, many theologians through history have become educated academically but still ignorant of the kingdom of God. It is when we have love for others in the heart that we are connected with God who is love and his spirit of love and true understanding of what the Bible's describing is understood. Continuing on, the more we use our knowledge and exercise our powers, the more knowledge and power we shall, uh, we shall have. Law of exertion right there. Every effort made for Christ will react in blessing upon ourselves. How do we get more spiritual powers? By exercising them, by applying them, by using them, by, by sharing what we currently know, by studying. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. evil. Hebrews 5.14. Again, uh, law of exertion. Spiritual powers now. Get your mind around what I'm about to say. Spiritual powers cannot function without mental and physical powers. But both mental and physical powers can function without spiritual powers. Evil people who reject God, including Satan and his demons, uh, evil angels, can reason, strategize, memorize, learn facts, gain new skills and abilities, both mental and physical. The mental and physical powers can operate without spiritual powers. Following the same laws. Yep. But one cannot know truth, love, hope, be conscientious, have living faith, discern, have genuine wisdom without mental powers, without a, without a mind, and without a physical body. And to the degree then, understanding that, you can then get discernment into some of Satan's attacks. To the degree our physical health is undermined, all of our spiritual powers are undermined. Even if you have love in your heart to help your neighbor, if you're laid up in the hospital on a ventilator, your spiritual power to minister to another is compromised. Does that make sense to everyone? So Satan seeks to destroy by 
first, infecting our thinking with lies about God, which undermines development of our spiritual powers. We don't really trust him. We make up theologies to keep ourselves hidden and protected from him. This impairs our unity with God, impairs our ability to grow, with God, uh, to grow in love, impairs our hope. It keeps fear alive in the heart. This is what the penal legal systems of theology do and make spiritual weaklings. Another attack of Satan is to overtax us in good things. Overtax us mentally. Overtax us physically. Overtax us to the point we burn out. We're exhausted. In other words, we're violating the law of restoration. After a finite being expends a resource, we must rest and recover. Physical rest, but getting regular sleep at night is for your body. Mental rest, a weekly Sabbath rest. Come apart. Put your work aside. Stop worrying about the bills. Stop worrying about your grades. Stop worrying about your job. Stop worrying about the yard work. Stop worrying about the housework. Put it aside. 24 hours, decompress. Rest. Rest your mind. Put your cares aside. I'm going to tell you, the science is very clear on this. People who rest regularly, their minds are healthier people, less stressed. They live longer, less physical problems. They're strong. They are less, they're more invigorated. God gave us a Sabbath rest to come aside every week to rest the mind. I see this in new and young mothers who have small children and they're up and down through the night feeding, not getting sleep. They're, they may be single moms or their husbands may work or work away. They don't have uh, anyone to help share the burden with them. They don't get a break from that infant 24-7, seven days a week. And this is a major factor in postpartum depression, exhausting and burning out mothers' physical and mental reserves. So mothers need rest. And so I gave a prescription to a woman who was six weeks postpartum this week that was in my office, and I wrote out a prescription that she had a breast pump and she used to pump milk. And her husband, at least one night a week, has to get up and feed the baby while she gets to sleep all night at least once a week yeah no it's serious serious this is this is this is neurobiological and physio- physiological the law of restoration to overtax ourselves he gets us to live in violation of the laws of health which undermine our spiritual powers that's what he tries to do Undermining healthy education is another way that he works to develop our mental powers in ungodly lines, teaching us that there is no God, that we all evolve from lower life forms uh, through our mental powers, thereby never even anticipating a God that we will become like, dwarfing our spiritual powers. It's all about us. You're only here. There's no purpose to life. It just happened randomly, spontaneously. There's no higher purpose you just, uh, you're just a random act of, uh, of, of, the, of the forces of nature. You better get what you can while you're here for your 70, 80 years on life because nobody cares about you but you. It's complete self-referential, self-centered, destroying the, pow- the spiritual powers. That's the modern education system. We'll come to that some more. Other destructive factors. In childhood, if Satan can get contradictions introduced into the developing child, contradictions like a, a caregiver, a parent, a teacher, a pastor who claims to love but abuses exploits, 
contradiction. It doesn't make sense. The world doesn't add up. It's very damaging to the developing child and thus undermines their capacities for both love and trust. Spiritual powers are damaged. A caregiver, a parent, teacher, pastor who claims to love but is inconsistent, doesn't keep boundaries and thus can't be trusted. A person in a role of authority, like teaching things that are contradictory to reality, uh, making up rules and threats of punishment under the guise of love, you know, the penal legal system of theology we were all taught that has no real bearing on reality. You know, it's a sin um, to uh, go out to a restaurant and buy food on Sabbath, but as long as you get a voucher uh, and you go to someplace with your voucher on Sabbath, that's okay. I mean, the inconsistent, irrational garbage And when you're asked questions, you're told, don't ask questions. That's what the Bible says. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. This damages the developing mind and the spiritual powers, these types of ideas. Failure to live in harmony with the laws of health, putting toxins in your body. Believing uh, Believing that faith means that you believe things without evidence. Just on claims. Somebody in authority said it, you're supposed to believe it. Or believing lies about God. These are all destructive to the development of spiritual powers. Healthy education starts in the home with a healthy environment that provides good nutrition, sleep, love, fresh air, touch, affection, healthy boundaries. And as a child is able, engaging in, dis- in, in discussions to teach them how God's reality works. In other words, it requires a Bible-centered, God-centered home and perspective and worldview. Now we're just getting to Sabbath lesson. <laughs> and the second paragraph um, says, the system of education instituted in the beginning of the world was to be a model for man throughout all after time. As an illustration of its principles, a model school was established in Eden, the home of our first parents. The Garden of Eden was the schoolroom. Nature was the lesson book. The creator himself was the instructor, and the parents of the human family were the students. What are the principles of education we gain from and we learn or gain from considering Eden? Daily communion with God. Principle of education. God is a source of truth. We humbly meet with him every day, focusing on him and learning from him. Learning from reality, nature, how reality works, which teaches what kinds of law. The laws of nature, the laws of health, the laws upon which reality are built, design law. Were there any keep-off-the-grass signs in Eden? No, there were not. We'll come to the tree of knowledge in in good and evil. And there wasn't a sign. And there wasn't a a rule. There wasn't a rule. We'll have to get to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If we don't get there, you make me get there. It's important we explain that. Because some people think, some people think it was a rule. Oh, get off the, they stepped on the grass. You're in, okay, you're, demerit, legal trouble. You've got to go to court now. You've got to be prosecuted. You've got to be punished. Complete fraud, complete lie. Complete fraud and complete lie. I'll let you all work on that, but we'll get to it because it's data later in the lesson. Um, if we want to damage true education, we would interfere with these elements I just described. So we want to damage your education, we would teach there's no God. Or we would replace him with a false God, either one, or with human intermediaries between us and God. All of these things damage true education, removes God out of the supreme place. Yes? 
or be too busy to spend time with Right, so, so busyness, but I, I'm talking about if we want to promote an educational system now, if we want a system, if we want to count, how can we destroy true education, tr- destroy the spiritual powers? Let's create a system that removes God. That's the Roman system. We have a human intermediary, or we have an imperial God construct who runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. Both are false images. And then that led to the Dark Ages and the complete destruction of the um, spiritual powers and the masses of people. People weren't critical. They couldn't discern right from wrong. Uh, just think of the, just how, how humanity fell into the darkness after God was replaced with these false concepts. And that led then to the total rejection of God. And now we have in our school systems these, these ideas being taught that there is no God. And look what's happening. They're swinging, look what's happening to our society today. It's crumbling. Spiritual power, self-control. Do you see self-control in the news when you, when you see people out there? We're losing spiritual powers. Yeah. So remove God. That's one thing we would do. We would replace design law with how reality works with man-made laws and legal requirements and restrictions. This leads to all types of inconsistencies that are contradictory, that don't make sense, that are irrational, that dethrone reason, that undermine ability to discern. You can never tell what's right or wrong. And so we have this, oh, everybody's truth is their truth because, because under the imperial model, there are so many loopholes. Abuses, extortions, tax exemptions. It increases fear. People become legal, rigid, rules-oriented, irrational. They're not actually applying principles of how reality works. They make up rules and they apply them even when it's it's not even necessary. You see this with the COVID going on right now? Seriously. Let me give you just a little, just a little metaphor, to, just so you can maybe pull the blinders off and see the irrational application of of rules. In 2017, there was a mass shooting into about 10, 000, a crowd of 10,000 in Las Vegas. Now we can assume it's an assumption; it's not proven, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that in that crowd there were people from a wide variety of backgrounds. There were liberals and there were conservatives. There were Democrats and there were Republicans. There were people of different races in that crowd. People of different religions in that crowd. If 10,000 people, you're going to have a wide variety come to a concert. When the bullets started to fly, did the people in the crowd differentiate their response based on their religion? <laughs> differentiate their response based on their political party or their political views? Or did everyone basically take the same action, seek cover, and help somebody close to them if they needed it, get to cover? That, that's what you do when you have a real threat. And were they all crying out for help, even the ones that didn't believe? Like praying, you know? Well, I don't know about praying to God or not. That's a different question. But my point is the actions they took. Their actions were, we have a real threat. Bullets kill. Let's get out of the way. Why do you think there is such a stark difference in our country between red and blue governments, red and blue, liberal or conservative governments, and the restrictions that are being applied? What's that evidence of? That this is not a real threat, it's a perceived or potential threat. Control. You will change after 
<laughs> she said it will change after November. There are actually people on record in the, you can look it up, I won't even go into it. There are people on record actually saying that, 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 that all the restrictions in some of these um, certain places that have them, they're going to be lifted after the election. Um, but how, on, are they saying that on election day? That, that those communities are going to vote to do away with the virus, and once they vote that, then the virus leaves their community. Well, the virus respects us not eating, uh, so... Yeah. My point is simply that the, the, the virus doesn't have the same threat to us that a bullet does. It is a potential, much less threatening than being hit. You get hit with the virus, you may be 45% asymptomatic. 99 point whatever percent recover. And so the risks of a bad outcome from the virus are substantially lower than the risk of getting hit by a bullet. You get hit by a bullet, your, your, your recovery rate is not as high as getting hit by the virus. And so in certain states, there's information put out there about the risk, and then they leave you free to decide on the risk you're willing to take with you and your family. You send your kids to school or don't send them to school. Go to a restaurant, don't go to a restaurant. Get your hair done, don't get your hair done. Other states, the aristocracy has decided that the serfs that live on their land are not intelligent enough to make an informed decision, and so the um, duke, uh, also known as governor, uh, has decided that the serfs on his land will not be able to open their businesses. and go. This is a form of paternalism, not respecting your individual. It's designed to destroy your spiritual powers, to keep you from actually thinking and reasoning, to, for you to surrender to a caretaker, for you to say, I don't need to worry. My government will take care of me. They know best. Just tell me the rule, and I'll follow, and I'll be safe. (laughs) Many people do like that, and they're infants, and the Bible describes them in Hebrews chapter 5, that though they should be on spiritual food, they're still on milk, and if they're on milk, they're not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness. We are to grow up and become mature and be able to discern and make intelligent decisions. But it's interesting that they just don't want to do it for themselves. You will find that the mature people are willing to present the truth and love and leave others free, while the immature people want their rules and then they want to persecute and coerce anybody who doesn't keep their rules into keeping their rules too. And this is an outrage to anybody who understands. It's destructive. So if you want to destroy spiritual powers... You replace God, you replace design law with a bunch of inconsistent, erratic rules, which is what's happening in our society today. You replace actual examination of reality with textbooks that are filled with claims, proclamations, theories, dogmas, creeds, perhaps, godless theories of origins, claims there's no male or female, whatever, Without actual examine evidence, you, 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 you present the textbooks with dogmas and require memorization to the dogma. This leads to increasing intolerance of those who don't see it the socially correct way. You see, when we don't actually possess the evidence and the truth and stand in God's reality, But the position we hold is dear to us. 
We resist evidences, truths that would expose our position as being erroneous. And rather than in, in, in inviting and creating an atmosphere in which all ideas are welcome and the best ideas are the ones that are going to retain and if my idea isn't the best idea, then I want it corrected and improved upon by somebody who stands in a position that has better perspectives, insights, discernment, wisdom than I have because I want to grow in truth. I love truth. I want to grow. But if, if, if that's not my heart, if I have a position that's sacred to me, if it's, if it's what I want to promote and, and the truth is against it, then I have to silence those voices. I can't allow for free speech. I have to shout down opposition ideas. I have to intimidate. I have to, to cancel. I have to riot. I have to use, and we've seen this. God sent his prophets in the Old Testament to Israel who was wrong. And how did, how was Elijah treated? How was Elisha treated? How were the prophets treated over and over again? Oh, but no, I'll send my son. And so the son comes with even greater light, the light that's light in the world. And how was he treated? He was Denied, he was crucified. And then the apostles, how were they treated? And the reformers, how were they treated? Who used the mobs? Who used the violence? Who used the shouting down methods? And who are using those methods in society today? When you see those methods being used, you can be sure you're not seeing the movement of the Holy Spirit, you're seeing the movement of Satan. And that's what we're seeing. And I'm going to say to some of you who may have great compassion and great deep feelings out there for the so-called victims of these movements that they're so-called standing up for, you're being deceived. They're playing off your emotions. It's a big trap. Truth will set you free, not compassionate feelings. Compassionate feelings will enslave you. Truth will set you free. We replace God's design for relationships and family and loving other people to seeking their best interests. We replace that if we want to destroy the spiritual powers with all types of distortions based on this sinful world, the survival of the fittest. So relationships become distorted and men dominate and abuse women. Marriage becomes polygamous. Slavery occurs. Um, then you look through human history, how all of these relationships have been distorted because of fear and selfishness. Might makes right. Power of arms. Seeking wealth at all expense. Exploiting the person who works for you. The economy of heaven is replaced with the economies of earth. Do you see how the public educational systems of the world are completely corrupt and are structured to destroy the spiritual powers of people? My sister sent me this quote this week from the Great Controversy, um, page uh, 22. The majesty of heaven in tears... This is, a, this is the, the time of his last approach to Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to take you under. Okay, this is, this is the, this event is being described. The majesty of heaven in tears, the son of the infinite God, troubled in his spirit, bowed down with anguish. The scene filled all heaven with wonder. That scene reveals to us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It shows how hard a task it is, even for infinite power, to save the guilty from the consequences of transgressing the law of God. Pause. What do you hear? Why is it hard for infinite power? You see, if it's just a legal problem in trouble with a legal magistrate and you've got loving Jesus who's willing to be our substitute and pay our legal penalty and all we have to do is accept the legal application in a court in heaven, why is that hard? 
All selfish people, when they come before the judge and they're about to be put on uh, a death sentence and somebody steps up and says, hey, I'll take your place, every one of them, 100% will, I accept. I'll take the legal payment that you're going to make. So why is that hard? Because that whole thing's a fraud. It's a lie. It's not reality. The real problem is not legal. It's the actual condition of hearts and minds operating out of harmony with God and his design for life, which is love. It's hard to get people to choose God to reject the lies that they prefer, to reject fear and selfishness, to reject the joy they get from the power they exert over others. To reject the methods of the world and seek the justice of loving service to others and apply God's methods, I see how hard it is to get people to accept God's kingdom every day. Just look around the world right now and think about going to some of these places you see on the news and, and offering them the love of Jesus to change their hearts. You see how hard it's going to be to get them to change? You will probably get shot. Continuing on the quote, Jesus looking down to the last generation, that's us guys, saw the world involved in a deception similar to that which caused the destruction of Jerusalem. The great sin of the Jews was the rejection of Christ. The great sin of the Christian world would be their rejection of the law of God, the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. Pause. The great sin of the Christian world, not agnostic, atheist, or communist world. Not the Buddhist Hindu world, the Christian world. Now consider the meaning, the rejection of the law of God. Do we have any Christian organizations that you know of that actively teach God has no law, that they're lawless, they reject God's law? Now God doesn't have a law. Uh, there is no legal problem with sin. Sin is not breaking God's law. There is no judgment we face. There are no record books we have to deal with. There is nothing uh, legal or, uh, or law ordered in, in God's... Or, you know any Christian organization, or they all teach it. The idea isn't that they reject law. They reject God's law, and they replace it with man's law. The penal legal system. They reject the reality of God's design law. That's what this means. That's what the author is saying. Uh, finishing this quote. The precepts of Jehovah would be despised and said it not. Millions in bondage to sin, slaves of Satan, doomed to suffer the second death, would refuse to listen to the words of truth in their day of visitation. Terrible blindness, strange infatuation. Why are they doomed to suffer the second death? Because of having accepted the lie about God's law, that it's imposed rules, and having accepted a false diagnosis that their problem's a legal one, they accept a false treatment, a false remedy. They just need a legal solution. I'm going to pay the penalty. Rather than accepting reality, they need to be reborn. They need a new heart and right spirit. They need to have the law written on the heart and mind. Thus, they're doomed. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, talks about how education is enhanced in a garden setting. I'm going to start speeding up now. <laughs> Putting us to sleep. Okay. A study of 498 Japanese individuals uh, Im uh, evaluated the impact of walking in the forest versus uh, routine day. And the study found that uh, those who walked in the forest regularly had significantly decreased hostility stores and depression scores, which, uh, which correlates better with better cognitive function when you're not depressed or angry. Uh, Great Britain has over 100 schools that operate in outdoor forest settings. And the observational studies of the students found that they had a significant improvement in child children's confidence, motivation, 
motivation, concentration, language, communication, and physical skills than students getting the same classes in an indoor setting. So outdoor setting, it's very helpful. That's, that's quick on that. Uh, now, oh my goodness, so much. <laughs> and entry of knowledge of good and evil. I know. Um, this quickly is about the purpose of useful labor and why useful labor. They had useful labor to do in the garden. Why is useful labor important for us today? The benefits, improved self-esteem from actual accomplishments and achievement, better physical health from increased physical activity and reduces the firing of the stress pathways, which improves your physical health. Development of our brain circuits that control physical motor movements, which improve organization of our thoughts and initiation of thoughts. Uh, those, those circuitries uh, are, are over, overlap. Benefits to those around us as we use, engage in useful labor, we benefit our communities and our families. Uh, reduce burdens on others by staying active and thus staying healthier. So we don't, we have uh, less disability, so we reduce burdens on others around us. We harmonize with the law of love, which is the principle of giving as we uh, do in useful labor. And thus, the more we give, the more we receive. Um, In the world of sin, working also reduces the opportunity for temptation, develops uh, work ethic and, and mature character traits, thus helps us mature our character. So many benefits of useful labor. It doesn't have to be for a paycheck, but we engage ourselves to actually engage in something outside ourselves that's useful. Can you see why? There are movements afoot to have certain cultures in our society disengage from useful labor. Let me ask you this question. Which, I'm going to give you two groups. Which group would be most likely to develop their highest potential? Group A, though they have liberty, freedom, and equal opportunity, but have to work for everything. There are no freebies, no handouts. Group B, they have liberty, freedom, and equal opportunity, but everything necessary for life is given to them. Monthly stipend, free housing, food vouchers. Uh, whether they achieve or don't achieve, they always have a place to live, clothes to wear, and food to eat. Which group will achieve their highest potential? Is there any doubt in your mind? Then think through policies in our country and then look at consequences on people. Why would those, con- why would those policies be there? What's the goal? It is a violation of God's design law to give everything to people and never require them to exert themselves, never place themselves where they have to work or apply their energies to grapple, to overcome. They can't develop, they can't grow, they can't get stronger. Third paragraph talks about happiness. And as I pointed out previously, happiness is a byproduct of healthiness in all domains. If you're physically unwell, you're not happy. If you're mentally unwell, you're not happy. If you're relationally unwell, you're not happy. If you're spiritually unwell, you're not happy. I came across a quote this week from Viktor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, and Holocaust survivor. And this is a quote from him. Success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than themselves. Wow. So right. See, God's principles are eternal. People with discernment can see them. Many people are unhappy because they're unhealthy in some way, typically spiritually or mentally, substitute pleasure-seeking for happiness, and thus they engage in all types of addictive things to make them feel pleasure, which only make them more unhealthy and more unhappy. So there's uh, been a lot of research recently on happiness. And I'm going to share some of that research with you. 
In a six-week study, the researchers had um, participants randomized into a control group and two active arms, two active groups. One group of the active group was to count your blessings once a week, every week on Sunday. The other group was to count their blessings three times a week on uh, Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursdays. This was done by making lists of things to be thankful for. And then they uh, did this for six weeks, and they measured happiness scales in the control group and then the two blessing groups. What do you think the outcome was? Who was happiest? Those who counted their blessing once a week had improvement in both gratitude and happiness. Both the control group and those who counted their blessings three times a week had reductions in both gratitude and happiness. Once a week caused actual thankfulness and appreciation, but three times a week caused a desensitization where the lists became rote, a chore, pro forma, routine, even a burden. They just started doing it because they were supposed to. Once they did it three times a week. I, I, yes? Is that why communion is done just quarterly? I don't know about communion done quarterly. <laughs> Uh, is a, in a different four-week study, they had a control group and two study groups. One group was to act, uh, to do acts of kindness to others. The other group was to do acts of kindness for the self, like give themselves a, a special food treat or get a massage or so, something for self. At the end of the study, four-week study, what do you think they found? Those who did acts of kindness for others were happier than the control group those who did acts of kindness for self were no different than the control group. In another four-week study, researchers wanted to see if acts of kindness did more than just bringing emotional state of happiness. Are there actual physical be benefits to acts of kindness? So they uh, had four groups. Controls, those who were to act of kindness for others, those who were to acts of kindness for the world, like going out and just picking up trash in their neighborhood, okay? uh, but not a specific person and those who did acts of kindness for themselves. They examined gene expression in their white blood cells to see if there's a difference in immune response. Those who did acts of kindness for others had reduced inflammation and improved viral fighting abilities. Genetic expression in their white blood cells. Those who did acts of kindness toward the world or for self did not differ from control groups. My question is, where are you getting these results from? <laughs> <laughs> no, the point is it has to be relational. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense if you understand the law of love. You cannot love a piece of trash. Okay? Now, if you're picking up trash from your grandmother's yard to help her, that is not an act of love for the world or the community. That's an act of love for your grandmother. That would have been beneficial. You would have had benefit from that. It's almost like saying they don't want to do stuff like that. It's not saying that. It's saying that there may be benefit to the community, but those aren't really acts of love to a person. God created us relationally. Uh, one more. Researchers found that the acts of kindness uh, and ha uh, or happiness interventions would backfire, causing less happiness in some situations and make a person less happy. When the motivation is self-focused, I'm going to do this act of kindness so I can get the other person to like me more. Or I can get a promotion. I'm going to uh, get flowers from my boss so I can get, a, get promoted. These acts of kindness did not actually bring more happiness. They brought more worry and stress. Did it work? Did they like me? Peaceful okay. protest. Does that surprise anybody? Yeah. 
Okay, it's not love. It's, it's selfish. It's selfish. Understand, this is breaking exactly on the law of love, guys. Exactly on how we understand love works. Oh, here's another one that backfired. When it becomes a burden, when it becomes work, when it's uh, rote rather than actual love. Oh, does anybody think of Isaiah 58 that you will only be a true Sabbath keeper when you call the Sabbath a delight? If it's a rote thing you have to do because of rules, there's no blessing in it. That's exactly how love works. Exactly. Yeah, first study is why we don't have three Sabbaths a week. That's right. <laughs> yes, exactly right. When it contradicts, when, and here's another thing that will backfire make you less happy. When it contradicts your heart's true attitude, your beliefs, or your mindset. So a person who is in clinical depression, and, is, and they're told to make a, a list, a thankful list, a, th- a list of, of things they're thankful for, this can actually cause a person to feel guilty because they're, they realize how much some, everybody's done for them, and they feel like they're a burden to everybody, and that everybody better off without them. So they can backfire when they're in a state of clinical depression. That might not be a place to do that. Cultural contradictions. In some Eastern cultures, to, tell, uh, to give thanks to a parent for doing a good job, say, hey, I want to just thank you for doing a great job in raising your child, is offensive. It insults them. How dare you suggest that I, I need to be thanked? It was my duty to raise my child, and I fulfill my duty. Are you suggesting I wouldn't do my duty? Okay, so thanking in that circumstance can be actually uh, not beneficial. Uh, and then... Actions that will go against a person's baseline personality, because there are different personalities, such as a very introverted person being directed to get up in front of their church and tell and give thanks to their church group. This could backfire and cause much more stress and unhappiness rather than happiness. So there are caveats to this. Did you find the research interesting? Yes, okay. Um, Now let's get into the Garden of Eden and the temptation, and we're going to spend 10 minutes. We're going to go over a few minutes here. Uh, from the NI, because there's some very important stuff. We'll close on this section when this is uh, Monday's lesson. So we're going to make it to Monday, folks. <laughs> and it tells us to examine the temptation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent is more, we're going to read, the, the serpent is more crafty than any other um, wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And you know what the rest of it goes, so I'm not going to read it so we save time. In the exchange, what did the serpent do? What lies did the serpent introduce? You will not surely die. Okay, we know that one. What's implied in this lie? There's a lie implied here. God's holding out on you. You will not surely die. Is the serpent saying that the, uh, basically, that there's nothing wrong with the fruit? Look, I eat the fruit. I can talk. If you eat it, you're not going to die. Now, is that true or false? True. It's true. There's nothing wrong with the fruit. Nothing wrong with the fruit at all. So what's the lie that's being introduced? You're not going to die. There's nothing wrong with taking this action. I'm not saying God won't kill you. This is the, this is the introduction of imposed law right here. I'm saying there's nothing inherently wrong with doing this. If you do this, it won't hurt you. God might hurt you, but the action will not hurt you. That's what's implied. That's the lie, the introduction of imperialism. Now, if you read Ellen White, she actually talks about that, that as he evaluated the temptation, he considered God and he said the God he knew, he knew would forgive him. He couldn't imagine God being unforgiving. He knew he would. And he was right. God would. God was not the source. He did not understand the nature of sin and how sin itself would change him. He, he, he was buying also into the lie that well, broke a rule. God would forgive me for it and everything will be okay. I can keep Eve too and I'll all be fine. 
He did not understand the nature of sin itself, that it changes the sinner. The hand somewhere. And, yes? So God didn't exactly kill Adam and Eve. He put them out of the Garden of Eden so they no longer had access to the tree of life, which sustained their life. Yeah, okay, so that's the physical life. Are you suggesting then if the tree of life would have stayed on earth, there would have been no death? That, that, that Abel would have not have crushed, uh, Cain would not have crushed Abel's head with a rock. That couldn't happen with the tree of life on earth. Uh, we couldn't behead somebody with the tree of life on earth. Uh, s- uh, nuclear weapons could not have been made, and we could not have had a Hiroshima and Nagasaki with, a, with the tree of life on earth. Everybody would have lived through the, through the nuclear holocaust that, that was brought down on them. Are you saying that? No. I'm not- no. So the point is death would have still ensued on earth because sin was on earth. So it would not have stopped death. It would only stop aging. That's all it would have stopped, aging. Well, I'm just saying God did not literally smash in Adam and Eve's heads with rocks and he didn't have an atomic bomb to kill Adam and Eve. But you're missing the point. It was never about the first death. The tree of life only prevented first death. And sin was never about first death. Sin was about eternal non-existence. Removing the access to the tree of life was actually an act of mercy. Absolutely. It stopped suffering. Who do you think would control it if it was on earth today? The most kind, benevolent, gracious people or the most Stalin Hitler-like? Well, if you just had eternal eternity and still had death, the misery and suffering that would have ensued That's right. of eternal life. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it wasn't exact mercy. It wasn't a punishment, as some would, would say it is. So you're exactly right. So the, I just want you to see the lie here. This is where the idea of imperialism gets introduced, and she believes the lie uh, that, oh, you're right, there's nothing wrong with the fruit, okay? And he diverts her attention away from, it wasn't the fruit, it was breaking trust with God. That's what the problem was, breaking trust with God. But she missed that point. So that, and so then another tactic of Satan comes out, widely used in society today, another lie here, is called globalization. He globalizes. He takes a very narrow and minor restriction, and he expands it. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in this garden? Man, you can't eat from any. You're going to starve in this place. He didn't say that, did he? No, that's Satan's, uh, Satan's distortion, a narrow restriction, globalized. Do we see this happening in society today? Do people take a, a narrow element and globalize it, such as um, white police officers shooting black men? Being globalized. We live in a society of white oppression where black men are being hunted and killed by white police officers. This narrative is a lie. It is just like the tree. And it can't eat anything. No black people are safe in this country. Globalization, distortion, narrow point, global application, creates lies. I'm going to read to you from a... And I say this, it's true. But it doesn't matter because I'm a white male. What do I know? A white male can't know anything about this. I am prohibited from actually knowing anything about this issue because I'm white. Therefore racist. See? So I'll read to you from a black American female, granddaughter of a sharecropper, whose book came out this week, called Candace Owen. The book is entitled Blackout, How Black America Can Make Its Second Escape from the Democrat Plantation. (laughs) And this is uh, from the book. 
The narrative that black men are routinely discriminated against and slaughtered by white police officers has become a dominant theme across mainstream media, inspiring protests, boycotts, and clashes with police officers. Across social media footage of uh, across social media footage of black men dying at the hands of white police officers has received hundreds of millions of views. garnering an emotional response from many who have decided that police brutality is a problem that needs to be solved. Of course, virtually no American would stand in support of something as horrific as police brutality. But the truth is, the issue of blacks being murdered at will by vigilante police officers is but a dishonest distortion blown out of proportion by the liberal media. That's globalization. Uh, blown out of proportion. Liberal media's foundational need to highlight the suffering of the black community, whether real or imagined. In an op-ed piece by City Journal on September 25, 2017, writer and attorney Heather McDonald dis- uh, used indisputable numbers to dispel the narrative that killing of black men by white cops was such a frequent, senseless occurrence. Uh, that all black mothers ought to keep their sons locked up in their rooms. Contrary to Black Lives Matter narrative, the police have far more to fear from black males than black males have to fear from police. In 2015, a police officer was 18.5 times more likely to be killed by black males than an unarmed black male was to be killed by police officers. The FBI's 2018 data on homicide clearly shows that blacks do not need to be protected from white police officers, they need to be protected from themselves. Of the 2,925 blacks who were killed in 2018, 2,600 of their murders were by other blacks. Only 234 were by whites. I need not point out the fact that even if those 234 white-on-black homicides were all committed by cops, they were not, blacks are still 11 times more likely to be killed by someone of their own community. She goes on to document that research from the University of Michigan in Maryland document that what increases likelihood of being shot by a police officer is the number of crimes being committed in your community. If you live in a community with predominantly white crime occurring, then the risk of a white person being shot by a police officer is higher than a black person in that community. If you live in a community where crime is predominantly uh, perpetrated by black people, then the, pers- the, the likelihood of a black person being shot by a police officer is higher than a white person. And so what drives this is not skin color, but crime. Lo and behold, who enforces uh, and, and, and intervenes with crimes are being committed? So this is not a mystery. Then why the narrative? Because people want to be divisive in this country. They use the methods of Satan to take a narrow point and globalize it in order to cause division and hostility and hatred. Truth, though, sets free. Now, what about the question of the tree? Let's go to the question of the tree. What do you see in the name of the tree? It is the tree of the knowledge of evil. (laughs) Ah, the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge. The no- what is knowledge? Was this a tree of cognitive explanation and, and didactic education? Is that what this tree was? This is a tree of cognitive education and didactic education. Is that what it was? No. They had already had explanation from God and the angels explaining to them what sin was. They had cognitive. So what is the knowledge? Uh, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? That life eternal is to have an explanation about God and then you memorize a Bible verse and you have knowledge now. Is that what it means? Oh, it means knowing on an experiential level. And so the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the place that they were to come to know 
in their character, in their being, in their person, either good or evil by the choice that they would make. And so God tells them at the tree, choose well. Choose not to partake of the fruit and choose to know good. You will know love, you will know trust, you will know loyalty, you'll know devotion, you'll know maturity, you'll know integrity, you'll know joy, you'll know godliness. All of this will be solidified in your character. Choose the knowledge of good. But if you choose to partake of the fruit, you will know fear, you will know selfishness, you'll know insecurity, you'll know guilt, you'll know shame, you'll know distrust, you'll know pain, you'll know suffering, you'll know death, you'll know evil. God already knew evil, not in his character, but in his heart, in his heavenly home had been fractured. He knew the suffering and heartache of betrayal, of disaffection, of being lied to, of losing his most loved being. He knew the pain of evil. He knew it. He did not want them to know it. And the only way that they could know good in character, because God cannot create character, is for them to come to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and choose to reject the lies and choose the good and they would know the good. Instead, they chose to know the evil. And in so doing, they severed their connection from God, infected themselves with the law of sin and death, and they were now in a terminal condition that would only have life again if Jesus came as their substitute, not to pay a legal penalty, but to destroy the infection and restore God's law of love in humanity. So God said, don't, don't eat of this fruit. Instead, choose to know the good. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your beauty, for your kingdom, for how you've created reality to work. We thank you that you didn't just put the tree out there and let them randomly figure it out, but you gave them specific instructions, and you give us specific instructions, not as rules that you'll punish us for, but as guidelines and and insight to teach us so that we can just make the wise choice and be solidified into your principles and and your methods into our hearts. We ask that your spirit be poured out, transform us, renew us, enlighten us, and direct us, and enable us to take a healing message to this world that so desperately needs it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.